This Sunday, I would like to focus with you on probably what's one of the most well-known um, readings of the New Testament, and that is, of course, the reading from the book, from the letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. It is, like I said, one of the most used. If you've ever gone to a wedding, uh, you hear it, uh, love I love is patient, love is kind, or that, that kind of reading. But I, I think it's important, and I, I, I say what I'm going to say today, I say a lot at weddings. Because at weddings, if you think about it, people are promising to love each other for the rest of their lives. But I, and I may have said this to you before. You know, I've been a priest now for 45 years. And if there's anything that I have learned in those 45 years is that the vast majority of us do not know what it means to love. We have a, a, a real problem. And the reason we have a real problem is partly because of our language. You see, when we use the word love, it could mean anything. I mean, think about it. You use the word love to talk about your highest commitment to God, and you use it also for ice cream. I mean, you could mean anything by that. You know? So the word love in and of itself is very confusing. Now, the New Testament is not confused at all when it comes to the word love. Because the Greeks in which the New Testament was written, the Greeks had four different words, probably some more, but the main ones are four different words for the word love. And some of these you probably heard, but let's go through them. The first one was the most general kind of love, which is affection. You know, like the affection parents have towards their children, you could have very intense affection, or you could have intense affection to your country, or it's, the, it's a very general kind of love. And that word in Greek is called storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, storge. The second word in Greek that means love is eros. Now, eros is where we get the word erotic. And that is sexual love or romantic love. What we use a lot when you say the word, I fell in love, people are talking about eros. Now, it's interesting because when I do wedding, I always remind the couple that they are not promising eros. They are not promising to be in love for the rest of their lives. Because being in love is all about how you feel. And you cannot control your feelings. You can't get up in the morning and say, I am going to feel X, Y, Z. You don't, you can't. So since you don't have the ability to control how you feel, you have no ability to promise it. Which, by the way, is why we use the verb to fall. Notice, I, I, have you ever said to anybody you love, 
I ran into love with you? Or how about, I jumped into love with you? No, it's always, I fell. I'm so sorry, didn't mean to, but I fell. Okay? Now, why do we use the verb to fall? Well, be because we're talking about our feelings. And you talk you, if you, in, about your feelings, you fall into your feelings. You don't walk or jump or you know, run into your feelings. You fall. That's why we say, I fell into a depression. It's not something you, you do. So that's eros. And by the way, in the New Testament, the word eros is never used. Not even one time for the word love. Nobody ever used that word in the New Testament. The third word is philia. Now, philia is the love of brothers or no, the love of a deep friendship uh, with, a, with another human being, a, a lot of a depth friendship. This is where we get the word philadelphia. Uh, it's philia, which, or filio, which is brotherly love, and adelphos. Adelphos is Greek for brotherly or friendship love. And so those are the first three. But when Paul is talking right here, and he's talking about love, He's not using any of those words. In Greek, he's using a word you've probably heard before, which is the word agape, or caritas in Latin, where we get the word charity. And agape is a, 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 agape is a decision. Agape is something you will, you, you decide. Um, it, I, I always like to use the example of Jesus on the cross. Um, on the cross, Jesus was abandoned by us. He, he was betrayed, abandoned. He was, he was being made tortured and made, made to suffer. And at that moment, he had every reason to turn to God, his Father, and say, Father, to hell with all of them. To hell with them. They, they don't, everything we've ever done for them, and look what they, what they do to us. And he could have condemned us all. But at that moment, Jesus did not act on his feelings. Because I guarantee you, he did not feel romantic towards us. He did not feel friendly towards us. And his affection, I'm sure, was not a lot there. He had to make a decision. He had to make a decision to care about us even when we didn't, he didn't feel like it. And that is what agape is. And notice what he does. I, I find it extremely extremely insightful. At that moment, when Jesus forgives us, he doesn't forgive us directly. I, I find that's the one thing I, I find that is most interesting. Why didn't Jesus forgive us directly? 
You know, direct forgiveness would have been, I forgive you. Simple. Three words. I forgive you. Directly talking to us. Who's Jesus talking to? He's not talking to us. He's talking to his Father. And what's he talking about? He is concerned about us. Now notice he doesn't express that concern directly. He doesn't say, I'm worried about you all. He's concerned and he talks to God. He joins with God and he decides to join with him in being, joining God in being concerned about us. Which is why I always give the definition of when couples are, and not just for couples, for every one of us, the, de, the, the definition that, of love that is operative. And this is when we mean, when Christians mean you love, you love even your enemies, you love to love one another. It's, it, this is the definition. Love is at its core the decision to unite yourself with God in caring for the good of another, no matter how you feel. Now let me say that again. Love, at its core, is the decision to unite yourself with God in caring for the good of another, no matter how you feel. When Paul is talking here, to about love. That's what he's talking about. Now, let's just look at what Paul is doing because the structure of this passage is probably the most profound structure of some of the New Testament passages. Let's look at it. Notice that what Paul is doing here, he's just finished talking to the Corinthians about other gifts because in Corinth, people are talking in tongues, People are prophesying and all kinds of different spiritual gifts are going on. And Paul has kind of had something to say about each of one of those. But when it comes down to it, he ends that this section by saying this. My brothers and sisters, strive for the greatest spiritual gifts, not for the lower ones, prophecy and tongues and all the other spiritual gifts. Don't strive for those. But I shall show you the still most excellent way. This is what you need to strive for. And then he begins by negating the importance of all of the other spiritual gifts that he's just mentioned in comparison to love. You, you notice here that he begins with the negative. This is how important this is. He goes, look, if I speak in the tongues of angels and human tongues and angels, but I don't have love. In other words, remember the definition, the decision to unite yourself with God in caring for the good of another, no matter how you feel. But I have not love. I am nothing but a noisy gong. Okay. Next if I have the gift of prophecy and I comprehend all mysteries and I have all knowledge, but if I have no love, 
means nothing. If I have faith so as to move mountains, but doesn't have love, I am nothing. If I, and then it comes to this, if I give everything I own, and I even give my body so that I may be my boast, but I do not have love, it means nothing. It means nothing. That's why, you know, when people, you know, come across and, oh, I have this spiritual gift, or God told me this, or you wouldn't believe how many people I, I come into contact with that think God is speaking to them, and they, uh, and 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 then you wind up understanding that that they don't they don't haven't even considered the loving impact that what they're saying has. They just are fascinated with all these the miracles and the and the the the. the I saw a sign in the sky and all this. I'm not arguing that you didn't see it. I'm just saying, I want to know how you're behaving towards your brothers and sisters because I don't care how many visions you see or how many, how many times God speaks to you. If you don't have love, it means absolutely nothing. Always remember that when, when um, Jesus is describing the judgment, when he talked to the people on his left, and he says, get away from me, you evildoers. Do you remember what they respond? They say, but Lord, we taught in your name. We prophesied. We spoke in tongues with your name. And Jesus says to them, I don't know you. I don't know you. Because whatsoever you didn't do to the least of my brethren, you didn't do for me. Notice, the presumption of the New Testament is that you can have prophecy and tongues and all kinds of revelations. But if you don't have love, it means zilch. Zilch. Now, when God, when Paul has finished talking about what love is not, then he begins to say what it is. Now, it's interesting because in Greek, it starts with love is patient and love is kind. But the translation is really not correct. The translation, there's no way to say it in English because the word is, the verb that is being used in Greek is actually more akin to does, does this does this. So it's an action, it's not just an identity. So it would be more like, love does patience. Love does kindness. Love does not do jealousy. Love does not do pomposity. Love is not inflated. It does not do rudeness. It does not seek its own interests. It does not do quick-temperedness. And it does not brood over injuries. It rejoices. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It hears all things, believes all things, and hopes and endures all things. Now, 
I found an interesting way of using this because I think that this can be a tremendous way of checking yourself. Do two things. Instead of the word love, I want you to get an image of Jesus. And so instead of the word love, let's put the word Jesus in each one of those sentences. So you get this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not jealous. Jesus is not pompous. Jesus is not inflated. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not seek his own interests. Jesus is not quick-tempered. Jesus does not brood over injuries when you crucify him. Jesus does not rejoice over the wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, meaning from the Father, and hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Now that gives you a, a real insight into the personality of Jesus. But now let's turn it around. Instead of using the word Jesus, use the word I. And this is tremendous interest to measure yourself as to how your Christian life is doing. So all of a sudden you get this. And see if you can do it on your own. It goes like this. I do patience. I do kindness. I do not ever do jealousy. I do not do pomposity. I do not do in, I do not have an inflated ego. I do not do rudeness. I do not seek my own interests. I am not quick-tempered. I do not brood over injury. I do rejoice over wrongdoing, but I rejoice only in the truth. I bear all things, believe all things. I hope all things, and I endure all things. How much of that is true of you? That's that is a worthy examination of conscience. You want to examine your conscience? Just use 1 Corinthians 13, the middle of the paragraph. The love is patient. Because that is what's important. That's what's important. The rest of it, remember what was Jesus' commandment? The commandment of Jesus was love one another. And he doesn't mean by that some kind of fruity little feeling that you get in the middle of your chest because you're such a wonderful person. Okay, He means what this says. So when you want to check yourself, check yourself with that. And then he finishes by saying, love never fails. If there were prophecies, look, all the other gifts, prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If knowledge, 
it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially and we don't know fully. And then he, he uses a very interesting thing. He says, when I was a child, I used to talk like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. Those of you who have children, have you ever listened to some of the reasoning of some of the kids? <laughs> They're just totally immature. But when you grow up, you learn how not to do stuff like that. You learn not to. And then Paul says, when I became a man, I put away all those childish things. At present, then, he's finishing, we see indistinctly, as in a mirror. Imagine you're looking at your reflection, but it's a mirror that is defective or it's dirty. You see it, but you don't see it completely. But then you're going to see it face to face. At present, we know partially, but then we shall be fully known. So, and then he ends, faith, hope, and love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. My friends, you can use that passage, especially that middle part, to guide your Christian life. That is unsurpassable because it brings to us the re in real focus what it means on the street, on when the wheel hits the ground. I am patient. I am kind. I do not brood over injuries. I do not I do pomposity, and and so on and so on. And so, I think it's a real challenge, and it's a reading that should not just be used for weddings. It should be used on a daily basis so that you can find out how well you're doing in keeping the one commandment that Jesus gave us, to love one another as he has loved us.